If you have your Bible, please turn with me to the sixth chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 6. Last time we were together, we saw that Jesus had brought something brand new in His coming. This new wine of His new covenant, He has now ushered in, and and like He said in that powerful parable, the old wineskins of the old covenant would not be able to obtain and contain the fullness of what He has come to bring. Jesus was completely and faithfully swallowing up both the letter and intent of the old covenant system. Not abolishing it, but fulfilling it in every way in order to usher in His new covenant kingdom. And all of these realities are stirring great frustration in the hearts of the Pharisees and scribes. And this frustration will turn into fury today in our passage. As Jesus challenges not only their understanding of Shabbat, the Sabbath, but He claims to have absolute authority over it in the process. Our text today, Luke chapter 6, we'll be reading verse 1 through 11. Please stand for the reading of the Word this morning for those who are able. We read, On a a Sabbath, while He was going through the grain grain fields, His disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do. With Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. What do, you, what do you think of when you think of Sabbath? I know growing up, I have encountered many different traditions. I had one friend who uh, his father was a pastor and wasn't much of a Christian, but I, I liked the guy. I played baseball with him. And he had this really interesting rule where on the Sabbath, on Sunday, their view of the Sabbath, right, was they didn't watch TV until sundown. That was their Sabbath rule. 
My, my grandmother Webb, back when she was a little bit healthier, she prepared all food on Saturday so that there would be no cooking or preparation on Sunday. For others, it's a day where there was, it's only family time. We do games together. We go hiking together. It has to be a day of family and worship, right? It is so fascinating to me about these different traditions that surround the Sabbath. And and where do they come up? Where do we get that stuff from? Where do we get this stuff from not watching TV or, you know, making sure we don't prepare food on Sunday or for some people, it's like, you know, we're, not, we're resting, but we're going to go to the restaurant and let other people work for us, you know? Is that wrong? You know, like, I don't know, right? That's, I remember growing up and being really confused about this. And, you know, I, I see in Scripture, like, the seventh day, and, and, but we're worshiping on Sunday, so what happened there? And, and, but, you know, when you're young, you don't even think anything about it. It's like, hey, it was, I told we're supposed to do it, so I do it, you know? So what is, what, what is this thing about Sabbath, Right? And when you're reading this, especially when I was younger, and I can imagine even Theophilus reading this letter of Luke, is thinking, this seems like an awful waste of, an, of space to be arguing about a day. It just seems like, isn't there a lot more important things we could be focusing on and disciples eating grain on a day of the week? I mean, John says that if we were to write all the things Jesus did, did the, the books couldn't contain it. So there had to be some other important things, right, that he said or, or did other than a grain confrontation. What is it about Sabbath that is so important? But the older I got and the more that I understood Scripture, I realized that Scripture has a lot to say about Sabbath, about Shabbat. And its importance within redemptive history. We see it right out the gate of Scripture. Right out the gate of creation. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 1 through 3. The Lord has perfectly created the heavens and the earth. It is very good in every way. And we read after those six days of perfect creation. Genesis 2 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, I remember being that kid in Sunday school growing up that was drugged to church by his grandmother. And this always confused me because why does God need to rest? You know, I, I, I never understood that. And, and now that I have children, I get those. I'm, I'm so thankful that I get those same questions. You know, this doesn't make sense. Is, was God tired? What does it mean rest? I want you to know. That contrary to what we have so often understood as rest, rest in Scripture, Shabbat, it doesn't mean idleness. It doesn't mean let's just be lazy. It doesn't mean let's just do nothing. Shabbat means completeness. It means 
It's done. It's finished. It is rest in a completed project. Rest in a completed work. And so, when God rested on the seventh day, it was His universal declaration that my creation is finished. It's completed. We so often miss this in our understanding, but it's important to note that Genesis 1 and 2 are temple text. Genesis 1 is God creating His cosmic temple where He would rest in. Every ancient Near Eastern reader would have understood that God was creating a cosmic temple for him to rest in. And so when it says that he rested, what he's saying is he has now taken residence in, resided in his completed cosmic temple. The seventh day was a declaration of God's victory over chaos. His sovereignty over all space and time. It was a declaration that His work was finished in the first creation. Notice, right? It was a, it was a day that was symbolic of God's rest. And know what's important about the seventh day. It is not marked with morning and evening. In other words... The finished reality of God's perfect work and provision for His creation was meant to be perpetual. God rested from His work. Why? Because it's completed. This isn't marking a day. It's marking a reality. The rest of God. And in Genesis 2, God creates the way in which His temple is going to be expanded and He establishes a priest for His temple. His name's Adam. And Adam's sole purpose was to work in the rest of God. To work in His provision. To work in His rest. Knowing that Adam did not need to work To obtain anything that God had not already provided for him. Work was not evil. God gave man work before the fall. But it was not work for rest. It was work in rest. This is Shabbat. It's God's rest. To be in Shabbat is to be in God's rest, not yours. Now God would orchestrate the importance of understanding His rest and being in His rest by instituting a a, a call for His people after the fall, after this beautiful order was lost because of man and now work becomes toilsome and burdensome. God establishes a day there where they are to rest in Him. Rest in Shabbat, looking forward to a day when once again it will always be Shabbat. 
The, the practice of the Sabbath keeping was to look forward to the day where once again a new creation is made right. And where rest will always be a state of being, not just a day we follow. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do no, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your livestock, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So notice here, the Lord blesses the Sabbath day and keeps it holy. And He does it on a seventh day. So all that is called is for men to work six days and to keep a seventh day holy to the Lord. To keep a seventh day in reflection of God's perfect work. It is not to rest from their work. It is to rest in His work. Israel was heading into the wilderness when God wrote that with His finger on what we call the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Of all of God's law, it is only those Ten Commandments, the moral law of God upon the tablets that God wrote directly with His finger. Just a little interesting nugget for you who love just these interesting facts. Remember when Christ is caught with the, the, the woman who's being accused of adultery? What does he do with his finger? He writes in the sand. There's a connection there. So Israel's heading into the wilderness. And the Lord is providing for them a means by which they will have Sabbath even in the wilderness. And the best example of how they are to rest in his provision is found in the manna in the wilderness. Now, this manna, which literally means what is it? You know what it is, right? This is heavenly bread. God brings bread from heaven to fall upon them in order for them to gather and to be provided for His work. It's His work. I'm providing you with everything you need to sustain you in the wilderness and to feel my rest. And so, for six days, God would rain down this manna. And every day, they were only supposed to take exactly enough for that day. With the exception of the sixth day. Where they were to take a double portion for the purpose of being able to rest in God's provision on the seventh. In other words, the seventh day, once again, was not about resting from their work. It was resting in His work. Now, here's the problem though, right? If you grabbed too much, if you tried to add, get more than what God was providing for you and your family, that would rot. It would rot. It would end up being eaten up with worms. And this happened a few times. People's stuff was rotting and stinking because they gathered more than what God had told them to. They were adding to what God had said. And when you add to what God says, it ends up rotten. And then, because there were some 
who had been the unfortunate recipient of taking too much and it rotting, this led to fear, which caused some people on the sixth day to not take enough for the seventh. And so out of fear, they, left, they were left empty. Instead of walking in faith, they were left empty on the seventh day. Shabbat was about waiting on God's provision. They could rest and be nourished by what God had already provided for them. Shabbat was about resting from what they were doing and from what they could get for themselves in order to be mercifully nourished by what God had already provided for them. It is about resting in His provision. Not in what you can do, but about what He has already done. Now Shabbat continued to be primarily about not working on the seventh day. That is, until the Babylonian captivity. When, when the Babylons came in and through Nebuchadnezzar, they destroyed the temple. There was now no opportunity to have sacrifices offered because without the temple, you can't do sacrifices. And so the, what now becomes the main practice on Sabbath is synagogue. And so synagogue replaces the kind of temple sacrifices, and instead of temple sacrifices, and now synagogue centers around Torah reading. Because there is no place now to keep the bread of presence, the only thing we can offer is the bread of the Word. That's the idea. Torah reading replaced sacrifices in the absence of the temple, And as more and more cultures pressed into the Jewish world through captivity and exile and all of these other things, the Jewish religious leaders began to add more and more stipulations to the Sabbath in order to set themselves apart from the world around them. Remember, we talked about this last week. It's all about the culture war. You got to have the line. And if you start seeing the line get blurred, you've got to add more stipulations to get as much of a barrier as you can to say, no, we're different. We're not like them. And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they add stipulation after stipulation, none of which God has ever given for His people. The problem is that, as, that more and more traditions were being added to what it meant to keep the Sabbath. And so what's fascinating is these religious leaders who are confronting Jesus about Sabbath keeping are actually the ones who've been changing Sabbath all along by adding to it that which God never intended. And the more the focus became about what men and women were or weren't doing, it removed the focus from what God had already done. Sabbath became more about what are you doing or what are you not doing than it did about resting in the finished work of Him, in the provision of God, in the work of God, in the rest of God. 
Through the traditions of the religious leaders, the Sabbath became a practice that placed people under a deeper burden, fearing the judgment of God, rather than it did a greater rest in the mercy, provision, and care of God like it was given in the first place to do. They made Sabbath a fearful weight for the soul to bear rather than precious wings to lift it to heaven. Sabbath was never about your rest. It's about His. It's about knowing the only rest you'll ever have is when you enter into His rest. His provision. His perfection. His completion. That's what it's all about. These men had weighed down the soul's based upon their Sabbath rules rather than teaching its true intent and leading men to the rest that is found in Christ alone. And that's precisely what Jesus confronts in our text today. The main point of the text is this. Jesus declares as Lord of the Sabbath that He not only has absolute authority over it, but also demonstrates that He has come to bring the fullness of what Sabbath is truly about. The rest of provision, and restoration of God to all who trust in Him. It's the essence of where we're going with our text today. So let's look to our, turn our eyes to the text and see this unfolded for us. First, we see that Jesus declares His Lordship over the Sabbath. Verse 1-5, through five, On a Sabbath, while He was going through the grain fields, His disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? He said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So here, pretty simple story, right? Jesus and his disciples are traveling on the Sabbath, and they pass through some grain fields. And they're hungry, right? And so they grab some of these heads of grain and begin to to thresh it in their hands in order to separate the wheat from chaff, in order to eat the seeds of the grain, and to remove the chaff from them. Pretty standard practice of going through and, and just getting a few bites to eat in the grain fields. Now, the Pharisees are at this point, I mean, they're... They're just constantly looking for Jesus to slip up at this point. They are spying. They are watching. They are always looking and waiting finally to try to catch him in something. And so here, they are absolutely dead set that the disciples have broken the law of God. What they are doing by threshing wheat in their hands and eating it is against the Sabbath. They have broken the Sabbath. Now, this may seem silly to us. This seems like a big deal. But this would have been extremely detrimental. And had it been true, it would have served to undermine the disciples' testimony. It would have said, these men are lawbreakers. and Therefore, not to be trusted in what they say. Now, the problem is, is the Pharisees are absolutely wrong about this. And so, you know, and, and the problem is, and God had provided... In his law, a stipulation that allowed people to do exactly what the disciples were doing. We see this in Deuteronomy 23, 25. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, 
You may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, you can't go and harvest it for your own good. But you can glean from it what is necessary in order to feed yourself for that moment. God in His law had provided a means of benevolence and charity. We see this even within the book of Ruth, for instance, and the gleaning, the keeping the corners of the field. If when you're harvesting your field, the stuff that falls out of the the, the basket or is left, you are to leave it so that those who are in need can come and pick it up. So God provides immense amount of charity in His law. It just goes to show you that the law was never meant to be against His grace, but a reflection of it. So where in the world are they getting this understanding from then? The answer is called the Mishnah, the rabbinical tradition, which added stipulations to God's law, to God's word, by taking that which God provided in His law and added to it, redefining what could and couldn't be done on the Sabbath. And year after year, the list gets longer and longer and longer about what is required and how it gets interpreted. There is no less than 39 separate laws in the Mishnah which deal primarily with food preparation of, on the Sabbath. Almost 40 laws just dealing with what you can do with your hands, how you can't do it, when you can do it, the time frame when you should do it, what utensils you must use, what utensils you can't use. Over 40 laws just dealing with that. Just dealing with food on the Sabbath. This kind of burden is unbearable to even think about. And I'll give you an example of this. When I was at my chaplain school, um, Many different faith traditions were there, and one of my one of the guys that were in my group was a Jewish rabbi. And I'll never forget one Saturday morning, I get a knock on my door, and he, he says, Hey, can you come and turn my light off in my room? And I thought, What do you mean? Do you not know how to like flip the switch now? And he said, No, according to Mishnah tradition, that would be me breaking the Sabbath. And I said, Brother. You spent more effort walking down the hallway than you did. But no, this was based upon their interpretation of campfire laws from the Mishnah, which said that if you don't stoke the flame and fire on the Saturday and don't have enough for it, right, then you have to go without. And so he should have turned the light off on the day before, but now he has to go without it. And then I just simply asked him, and this was me being a little bit facetious, was like, so it's okay for me to break the Sabbath, but not you. <laughs> well, I'm a Gentile, right? So that's the way he looks at it. But Nevertheless, um, this just goes to show you the level of burden. And I mean, this was a legitimate burden on this man. And I went and did it for him just out of the sense of like, I saw the burden upon his heart. But, you know, and it just it broke my heart to know that kind of weight upon a soul to think that my standing with God is based upon something as simple as flipping a light switch. We may laugh at that. There's a whole lot of you out there that think you're standing with God is based upon what you're doing. But Jesus turns the story around. What's amazing to me is if Jesus was simply just trying to show that what his actions were doing were legal, all he needed to do was quote Deuteronomy 23. If he's simply trying to provide a legal case for why their actions are just in God's law, He could have quoted several passages from Deuteronomy. 
which is already his favorite book to quote. So clearly, the story he gives isn't about Jesus trying to legally justify himself. There's something about this interesting story he gives about David that just almost seems out of place until we understand it. What is it about this event from the life of David that Jesus wants us to outline or wants to outline for the Pharisees in order to teach them and even us about himself and what his disciples are doing? The event that Jesus is referring to in the life of David is one that we're actually going to preach on in three weeks when we go through the life of David in the Psalms. Um, David actually writes Psalm 52 based upon this event. But the story itself is found in 1 Samuel 21. Now, now here's the context of that story, right? The Lord has rejected Saul. He has rejected Saul because of his disobedience, because of his rebellion. And now he has anointed David to be his rightful king. David has been anointed and Saul is furious over this. And so Saul does what most tyrants do. He begins a campaign to try to kill David. So he begins to assail or to pursue David in order to have him killed. And in 1 Samuel 21, David is on the run for his life with a few men that have faithfully followed him. Because of the circumstances, him and his men had no time to grab provisions in order to feed themselves or care for themselves. And so David goes to the only place he knows where there is bread. He goes to the tabernacle. He goes to the tabernacle, and there he comes into contact with Ahimelech, the priest there, and requests and asks for bread. We see this story here, 1 Samuel 21, verse 2 through 6. David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you. And with which I have charged you, I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. And if the young men have kept them, if the young men have kept themselves from women and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So here's the situation, right? He goes to Ahimelech and says, I need the bread. Ahimelech basically asks him, hey... This is not common bread. This is holy bread. This is designated for the Lord. It is sacramental for the Lord. I need to know that your men are holy. They've been kept holy. Because if not, it's probably going to kill them. Wicked vessels cannot contain this bread. So they need to be holy. And the anointed king declares them as holy. Declares them as holy and says... And when they eat of this bread, they will be all the more holier. So Ahimelech gives in. And he gives them the bread of the presence. This covenantal bread, which was baked fresh every week and set in the inner courts of the tabernacle upon a golden table. 
Now what's fascinating though is according to Leviticus 24, only the priests are allowed to eat this bread. The ceremonial law declares only priests can eat this bread. Ahimelech knows this. David knows this. Jesus knows this. Pharisees know this. Jesus even says it was only legal for the priest to eat it. So Ahimelech in this situation, in this story, was placed in a moral dilemma. Okay? God's ceremonial law says that I'm not supposed to give this to anybody else but priest. However, the moral law of God requires me to love neighbor and to provide for them in a desperate moment of need. And so, Ahimelech sees the moral demand of God as superior to the ceremonial. The moral demand of God's law to love neighbor, which is what those last six commandments are all about. Loving thy neighbor, that's the fullness, the sum and substance of the six, last six commandments on the table of the law. He sees that moral imperative as superseding the ceremonial law which says only priests can eat this bread. Now, we've got to ask this question is, is, is that simply what Jesus is just using this for? Is, is He simply just saying, listen, you, I have a moral imperative to make sure that my disciples don't starve. And so I know that you have all your laws and everything like that, but the greater moral imperative is on taking care of their needs. Now, I think partly that's what Jesus is saying. Because remember, Jesus has already said to the Pharisees earlier when He called Levi, I desire mercy over sacrifice. So there's absolutely part of that there. Christ is establishing the authority and the a pinnacle reality that the moral law of God is greater than the simple ceremonial. But it's also important to note that he's starting to teach them something even greater about the Sabbath. In Mark's account, Jesus says something very fascinating here after saying this story. He says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What does that mean. It means God gave the Sabbath to bless and feed men, not starve them. God gave men the Sabbath to rest in His provision, not starve because of their failure of it. It is a day to celebrate what God has given to man, not what man doesn't have for himself. The Sabbath was given given to lovingly serve God's people, not to be a lording master over them. And Jesus is saying to them, you would rather celebrate your rituals than care for your neighbor. And you think you honor God. There's a reason why Jesus will teach these same leaders the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
you would rather maintain your ceremonial cleanliness than you would to love one of my creation and care for them the way you ought to. But Jesus is saying even more than this. Remember, who is asking Ahimelech to do this? It's David. This was no ordinary citizen. This was no ordinary situation. David was God's anointed king. And therefore, his men were on a divine mission following him in spite of the persecution they would face for doing so. It was of paramount importance to the Lord that his anointed one be fed. It was of paramount importance that he be fed and his followers fed in order for them to accomplish the purpose for which he had anointed him to do, to establish his kingdom. And it was perfectly proper, therefore, that a symbol whose strict consecration was designed to teach Israel to revere service to the Lord should be used to serve the needs of his anointed king. And if serving his needs meant serving the needs of his servants, then there was nothing improper about Ahimelech's actions. Though the bread was holy and set apart for a ceremonial purpose, it was right and good for Ahimelech to serve God's anointed king and his people. And if that were true for David, how much more so for not just God's anointed king, but for God Himself in the flesh. Because that's exactly what Jesus says of Himself in verse 5. And He said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Here, He's using that Daniel 7, uh, Daniel 7 language again about the Son of Man who comes from the Ancient of Days, who has a kingdom given to Him which will include a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who will be the judge over all mankind. And He's already used this language of Himself, but now He adds something very powerful. Not only am I the Son of Man, not only am I the one who comes from the Ancient of Days, not only am I the one who comes from Yahweh in covenant faithfulness, but I am Yahweh in the flesh. I am Lord of the Sabbath. Who who established the Sabbath in Genesis 2? The Lord. Yahweh. God. Who wrote on the tablets in Exodus 20? Yahweh. And Jesus says, that was me. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You don't just get to claim that. That word, Lord, kurios, master. I am the one, the ruler of it. The one who guides it and gives it. I have all authority over it. And by saying he is the Lord of Sabbath, he's saying, I'm the Lord of all creation. Jesus says, that's me. I not only gave the Sabbath, but I have the sole authority to interpret its purpose and intent for my people. How can my disciples be breaking the Sabbath when they are serving and following the Lord of it? Notice how opposition always serves to bring about a clear revelation of Jesus' person and power. In the gospel, it's every time Jesus is opposed that we find out something greater about himself. 
And that's true for your life as well. When you go through opposition, count it as joy when you face various trials and sufferings. Why? Because through that experience, you will receive a knowledge of Christ and the glories of who He is and His power for you that without that experience, you would not know otherwise. So what Jesus is doing here in this story that He gives about His eating of the grain is not trying to make a legal parallel. He's making a kingdom one. A greater David has come. A greater anointed king. One who is creating a brand new kingdom. And therefore it is right that my servants be fed. Just like David, he was the anointed one, but not yet enthroned. No, in the story, David is the God's anointed, but he's not yet enthroned. Jesus is God's anointed one, but he's not yet throned, enthroned. And he is being unjustly pursued by those whom God is rejecting because of their unbelief. Just like Saul rejected God in unbelief, these Pharisees are rejecting God in their unbelief. They are rejecting God's anointed king. The eternal Sabbath rest that God had promised His people was now breaking in with the new covenant kingdom of Jesus. The Lord of the Sabbath was here in the flesh, but they, like Saul, will continue to reject the true king. But this time, it is God Himself that they are rejecting. The Lord of the Sabbath. God's kingdom was breaking into the earth with Jesus. The new wine expanding. The old wineskins beginning to burst. Jesus was not destroying the Sabbath in these words. Jesus was not breaking the Sabbath. Nor was He saying it didn't matter. Rather, Jesus is saying that the Sabbath's purpose, its continuity, and its meaning must be understood in light of Him and His work. You cannot know Shabbat apart from Me. So when he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, he means you don't even know Shabbat if you don't know me. In this first event, Jesus declares his authority over the Sabbath. And now in the second event, he demonstrates his authority over. We see this in verse 6 to 11. And another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to him, Stretch out your hand, and he did so. And his hand was restored, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus." So here we have another Sabbath this time, a a second one, maybe the following week or perhaps a few weeks later. Jesus enters the synagogue and now he is being a rabbi himself. He is teaching there, teaching from Torah. And rather than centering their hearts on the glories of what Christ is teaching, notice what these scribes are doing. We are told they're literally watching to see if he will heal someone in order that they might accuse him. Think about that for a second. 
They're watching to see if He will heal so that they can accuse. Not, they wanted to see if He could heal so they would believe. I've heard that before. Oh, if He just did this, I'd believe. Not so that they could praise for the healing. Not so that they could say if what He had just said about Him being Lord of the Sabbath is actually true. No. They wanted to see if He would heal just so they could accuse Him. Because in the Mishnah, it had become a thing that if a healing was not to save life directly, it had to be done on another day besides Sabbath. Think about that. You can only do life saving healings on Sabbath according to the mission. It's all about men's work, not God's. Now what's amazing about this and, and is that that same story that Jesus gave about David going to the bread of, and taking the bread of presence at the tabernacle. What's fascinating is about this story is that it actually ties into this same event as well. Because in that story, there was a servant of Saul who was sent to spy on David. His name was Doeg the Edomite. And he spies on David for the purpose of going and accusing him to the authorities. 1 Samuel 22, 9 and 10, Then answered Doeg the Edomite who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions. So here, in that story, you have the anointed king getting spied on so that this person can go and accuse him to the authorities that he might be killed. You've got the same thing here. These men are spying on the anointed king so that they might accuse him that the authorities would come and kill him. When Jesus gives these parables, they are not meaningless. They are to tie in directly with what is happening in the story. These men are just like Doeg, spying on the anointed one that they might finally turn him in and be rid of him. But I think there's another reason why Jesus chose that story because we read in verse 8, He knew their thoughts. He knew their intentions. Notice it doesn't say they were saying this. They thought it. And He, knowing their thoughts, calls the man with the withered hand forward. This is His divine omniscience. He has not only said He is the God of creation when He said, I'm the Lord of Sabbath. He is now showing He's God by knowing the very thoughts of men. And I love it because Jesus pokes the bear. He does not back down by the opposition of men. He goes directly to it. Jesus could have healed this man the next day. No issue. He could have said, you know, I really don't want to cause any more issues here. I got a really good sermon going. No. He wants to make clear what I said to you about the Lord of Sabbath is true. And I want you to continue in your rejection because of what I know it will bring about. He brings the man forward with a withered hand, which is fascinating because in the Bible, a withered hand was a sign of judgment. It was a sign of God's judgment upon one. And so this man who is seen as having God's judgment upon him is invited by the Son of God Himself. He's fully obedient to the Lord. He doesn't care about the Sabbath rules. He's like, hey... I got a withered hand and I want it healed. Because this is a picture of judgment. 
And he says he can, re- he can remove that from me. So he comes forward, and I love what Jesus does. Because this is Jesus just, being, just making it clear as day. Jesus doesn't lift a finger to heal him. He just speaks. And the man stretches forth his hand, and it is healed. In other words, Jesus is saying, yeah, accuse me of breaking the Sabbath. Can a spoken word break the Sabbath? I won't lift a finger to heal him. I'll just speak it and it will be so. In that moment, that covenantal curse picture of a withered hand is immediately restored by his spoken word. The Lord declares to them, is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? To kill or destroy? You can't answer this question. Which is why He looks around at all of them. And none of them say anything. Because there's nothing to say. And then He completely heals and restores this man. Is Jesus trying to stir the pot? In some ways, yeah. Yeah. But he is also teaching us who believe in him so much more. My friends, what did Jesus come to do? He came to save sinners. He came to bring heaven to earth. To bless God's people. That they might rest in his life giving abundance in true Shabbat. Which is why he teaches us to pray, Thy will be done on heaven as it is on earth. He came to bring heaven down to all who enter into Him. Where did the manna come from that fed Israel in the wilderness? It came from heaven to earth to bless God's people in the perfect provision and work of God. And my friends, that's exactly what Jesus is. Jesus is the manna. Come from heaven to earth, the bread of life, to give men eternal Shabbat by resting in the perfect work of God in Him. Not only that, but He had come to usher in the beginning of a new creation. And every time He cleanses and heals and makes someone whole, it's a declaration, the new has come. A new creation is happening. One that is broken into this old fallen creation and is restoring all things back to the way they were called to be. The Lord of the Sabbath who established it to begin with was now taking the Sabbath which existed outside of men and was putting it inside of them. Rest will not be something now that you look forward to. Rest is something that is now living in you in Christ. This man who had no rest now has it by being healed. There's another story in Luke quickly now. Luke 13, 10-16. He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. 
She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed and from this bond on the Sabbath day? You worry more about your animals than my people on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day for the celebration of God's work. God's provision, God's deliverance, God's creation, God's care, God's love, God's mercy, God's grace. And anything that would reflect that should have been utterly celebrated and praised. A man and a woman who knew only physical and spiritual torment now knew Sabbath perfectly because of Jesus. Now they really knew Shabbat. Not in a day, but in a person, Jesus Christ. The man must be healed. The woman must be delivered. Why? To be aligned with the maker's desire for a new creation that will once again be very good. A creation even better than the first one. Because now, unlike Adam, who just had Sabbath around him, in the new creation, we have the Sabbath also within us. And yet these men, in their hardened hearts, were only filled with fury. And now, this sheer sense of resistance turns into complete rejection. They sought to figure out what they were going to do with him. This is the beginning we see what the end is going to look like. But Jesus sees this as purposeful and necessary. Why? Because in order to bring about the true everlasting Sabbath, this king must bear the crown of thorns. He must go to the throne through death. And that is how he will bring the true Sabbath for God's people. Through His life, death, and resurrection, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, would bring a new Sabbath for His people to celebrate. And that's what we're going to close with with this point, is that Jesus has inaugurated a new covenant Sabbath for His people. And we're going to turn to the writer of Hebrews here. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 3. A little background here. The writer of Hebrews is writing to Hebraic Christians. These are Jews that he's writing to who have become believers in Jesus but have abandoned their faith. They've gone back to the Old Covenant ways. They've gone back to Old Covenant practices. And He writes to warn them that if they neglect such a great salvation, if they neglect the light that they have received in Christ, there is nothing left for them. There is no hope of repentance if you reject the light of Christ. So He's writing to Jewish Christians here, not Gentile ones, so that's important. When he writes about what he's going to say about where the true Sabbath is found. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12. 
He's writing about how Jesus is a greater Moses who's ushered in a greater rest. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it, is say, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Just like those Pharisees did. For who were those who heard and rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter. Enter what? Rest. Because of unbelief. In other words, though they had that seventh day and continued practicing it year after year, they never had actually entered Shabbat. They never knew rest. Why? Because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest, notice that's what Shabbat is. It's His rest, God's rest. Still stands, let us fear lest any of us or any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news, gospel, came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. In other words, that Sabbath that God created and then reestablished through the teaching of the the law, there was something impartial about it. And what was impartial? It was that that rest now needed to be inside of His creation, inside of His people. They needed to eat the tree of life in order to receive that internal Shabbat. But they did not. And instead were broken off from it. So the rest still remained. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day. Think of, look at, listen how the way he speaks of the Sabbath there. Notice, he no longer calls the seventh day the Sabbath. It's just the seventh day. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day. Think of how flippantly that would have been read to these Hebraic Christians. Somewhere spoken? You mean like the first chapter, second chapter of the book? God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. In other words, that's not it. It's not about a day. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Notice that the Lord has appointed a new day for where Shabbat can be found. And what is the day? Today. Saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, true Shabbat, then God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God Did from his notice when you enter this true Shabbat, you no longer are trying to work for anything because you've been given God's rest. 
The moment you enter this true Shabbat, the writer of Hebrews says, all your working ceases to try to be made right with God and enter his rest. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fail. Well, where do we do? How do we get there? Where is this rest found? Where is this day of salvation to be found where we can enter the true Sabbath that God has promised us? A new day of rest. And he continues on in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Where do you go to enter God's rest? It's through Jesus, who is our high priest like Ahimelech, who gives us holy bread to eat in our hour of need, that we might be forever satisfied in the rest and provision that God alone can give. Do you see it full circle now? That is to say that to know true Shabbat is not about following a day. It's about being in a person. It's about being in Sabbath Himself. And who is Lord of Sabbath? It is Jesus. And you will never know rest until you're in Him. You will never know Shabbat until you know Him and until He is in you. This is exactly why He says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is where Sabbath is found. Because only in Him does all your works finally cease. All your desire to try to earn God's favor and trying to look right for men and trying to do do and do and do to get any sense of satisfaction when you're in Jesus, it ceases. Because you now rest in His work. His work, not yours. And what event serves as the absolute guarantee that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath who has brought us rest from His perfect, completed work? And the answer is the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is the absolute guarantee to the entire cosmos that rest, that Shabbat, that provision that comes from God alone, that the only way to enter His rest is found in a single person, Jesus Christ. Christ has come to establish a new creation temple where God now takes residence in us and rest in us. And the declaration that that was true was the resurrection. And this is precisely why God's covenant people continue to celebrate and honor the fourth commandment, but they do it on the day that declares true Shabbat's here. And it's the Lord's day, it's Sunday. 
The changing of Saturday to Sunday was not an arbitrary decision in the 4th century by the Roman Catholic Church. It is not. That is a lie. It was a complete redemptive focus of the church to set its heart upon the reality that everything we know about the peace and provision and rest of God is found in Christ alone who declared it to the world when He came out of the grave on the first day of the week. And so the church begins to practice and worship on the Lord's Day. Acts chapter 20 verse 7. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day and he prolonged his speech until midnight. They're gathered on the first day of the week. We see in 1 Corinthians 16 when they are to gather together in order to bring about uh, tithes and offerings for those in need. On uh, 1 Corinthians 16 too, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. God's people still work six days and rest on one. But they no longer rest from the toils of their work. They rest in the joys of His we no longer rest, we no longer work for rest, we work from it. And so that every day of the week, you get to leave here knowing I carry Sabbath with me every day. I don't work towards it. Every day, God is in me. Every day, I have the peace and provision of Christ, my great high priest, who has given me Shabbat. And the resurrection is also a declaration that an eternal Shabbat still waits. One where we will always be in nothing but the rest and provision of God in the day to come. It is no wonder then that this new Shabbat that we mark in the new covenant on Sunday would be given the name the Lord's Day. We see that already in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard it behind me a loud voice in the trumpet. It was on the Lord's day that John receives that revelation. What is the Lord's day? It is God's Shabbat here on us where we celebrate the glorious realities we have in Christ and Christ alone. So I say all of this to say Sunday after Sunday we come to be fed upon the manna of Christ. We come to have our souls healed and restored and renewed. We come to celebrate and rest in the provision of the finished work of Christ. We come into this little pocket of heaven, gather together with first fruits of the new creation to show mercy and love to one another. And we come week after week because we know the fullest expression of Sabbath in Christ is still future when He comes to carry us home to the eternal promised land. My friend, the Sabbath has not been abandoned. It has not been distorted. The fourth commandment has not been annulled. Rather, it has been fully established and defined in Christ. And it is to be practiced and understood in light of His perfect new covenant work on our behalf. And that is why the church perpetually celebrates the Sabbath realities on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, where we rejoice in everything God has fully provided for us in Jesus, our manna from heaven. Because only in Jesus can you know true Shabbat, true rest. He is. 
the Lord of the Sabbath. And there is no rest apart from Him. So here are the takeaways. As the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus gives His people perfect rest. Are you wearied and worn by the world? Are you tired of always trying to impress others or feel as if you need to work your way to earn God's favor? My friends, Christ says, come and rest in me. Come with all of your burdens and brokenness and fears and failures. And I will give you rest. Not as the world gives. Real rest. Real peace that cannot be taken from you. He allows you to lay down the constant desire to try to live up to something you will never attain. And to rest completely in what He's already provided for you. Because as the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus gives His people perfect provision. If you try to add to what Christ has given you, it will only rot. If you try to work and add works to the Gospel, it will only destroy it. It will be full of the worms of, and maggots of self-failure and frustration over and over again. You will destroy what He has provided if you try to add more to it. But, if you will not receive it by faith and continue to live in fear of wanting to have what you have and obtain what you have, then you will go empty. You will not have any provision for you if you will not receive it by faith. Day after day, He has provided you exactly what you need for eternal life. Will you receive it today? And lastly, as the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus gives His people perfect restoration. If you are in Christ, you are a brand new creation. Brand new. The old has gone. The new has come. And you are being transformed from one glory to the next in Him. You are the first fruits of a new creation. One where God has taken rest in you. And you can carry Shabbat with you everywhere you go. Jesus is ushering in a new creation with Himself. He is reconstituting a new Israel around Himself. He is laying the foundation for what will be a new understanding of Sabbath in Himself. And when we come back to Luke in August, we will see that this Jesus will choose a shocking group of men to be a new set of leaders for Himself. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. So stop looking for rest anywhere else this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You so much for Jesus. We thank You so much for the Sabbath that He has provided for us. God, we thank You for allowing us to enter into Your rest. That we are able to rest in the joys of Your work, in Your provision, in Your perfection. God, I pray that You would lay down any attempt this morning by any person to try to earn favor with You. To try to work their way towards Your justification when there is nothing that we can do to earn it. We are to simply rest in You. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you will rest, that you will cause us to rest in you, that you will lay down 
every heart before you that you will lift up our souls to the glorious realities of the finished work that we have in Christ. The rest in Him, the provision in Him, the restoration in Him. And that we would walk from this place celebrating the glorious reality that we have true Shabbat in Him and Him alone. That we may walk and work the rest of this week knowing that we do so all because of what you do for us. It's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.